0: City streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations.
1: Theodore Roosevelt once said, it's not the critic who counts. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of achievement, and who even if he fails, at least fails by daring greatly. Welcome to A Threat of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a clinical and forensic psychologist and private investigator and your host for today's show. Our guest on today's show about the psychology of terrorism and extremism is Jesse Morton, a man who has never been on the sidelines. He was once heavily involved in the arena of extremism as a prominent radicalizer in the West and as a co-founder and chief propagandist of Revolution Muslim, a New York City-based group active in the 2000s that promoted Al-Qaeda and jihadist ideology and was connected to a number of terrorist cases. Today, Jesse serves as an executive officer at Parallel Networks, an American nonprofit dedicated to combating hate and extremism, which he founded with a former NYPD official that once monitored him. Welcome to the show, Jesse.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So Jesse, let's start by defining some terms. What is extremism?
0: It's very important when we think in terms of extremism, political violence, and terrorism to distinguish behavior from ideas. Extremism in and of itself should be associated with the gradual progression of holding a radical idea or ideology typically affiliated with some sort of political connotation that believes that violence is the only means by which a social, cultural, or political change can be uh, enacted or enforced. And so essentially extremism is an ideology that is totally dependent upon violence for alteration of reality. And it certainly is an aberration in the sense that very few people in the world would be willing to make the levels of sacrifice, whether it be a jihadist blowing himself up in Syria for the cause or blowing extremist blowing a vehicle up outside of a federal government building as uh, Timothy McVeigh did here in the United States. Extremists are people that are ultimately dedicated to an ideology. And so extremism is essentially the adherence of a radical ideology, but the belief that the only way that those extremist beliefs can be enacted or fulfilled is through the means of violence.
1: So Jesse, how subjective is this? I mean, I've heard some people say that it's kind of in the eye of the beholder that one man's terrorist is another
0: man's freedom fighter. It's a very contentious issue, and it's a very big problem that we have right now that has all sorts of ramifications for what we allow on our Social media websites to what we allow and consider to be extremism in the public discourse, going all the way back to the founding of our country and the First Amendment. And how do we define hate speech? How do we define what an extremist movement is? What is hate? What is something that is extreme? And so certainly it is a subjective term. And much of the work that's done in the space that I belong to revolves around how one defines that. Um, it's very difficult to do extremism studies or extremism research or terrorism research without defining your terms. But the international community and the domestic community has been at odds with uh, consensual definitions since uh, the onset of trying to define them. So as you suggest, it is incredibly difficult to narrow down to some consensus definition by which we could say, this is extremism, that is not extremism.
1: So I, I'm kind of hearing you say that extremism is really about ideas. How does that compare to terrorism?
0: So the distinction that we drew from extremism and terrorism really is a result of some of the undeliberate but sort of short-sighted terms that we used post-September the 11th. There was only a handful of terrorist academics and experts in political violence, what it was called before we called it the War on Terror. It was previously considered in academic circles amongst the handful of people that were studying terrorism, more appropriate to classify it as political violence. And then we started a war on terror, but terror in and of itself is an abstract concept, highly debatable as to what that entails. And so then it shifted to extremism when it was very difficult to wage a war on terror, because again, as you suggested, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And so extremism is an effort that was put in place after the Iraq War started to go sour and radicalization studies started to be criticized on the grounds that, well, to be radical is not necessarily a good or a bad thing. Some of the most successful movements in history were radical movements that were offering critiques of the society. And so extremism was a way that we could steer away from talking about ideas and to equate radical ideas with the trek and the tipping point towards violence. Not so sure that that's a very successful demarcation. I'm not so sure it's the best way to do things, but it is pretty much the way that this field of trying to study political violence has turned.
1: It sounds like it's pretty complicated and there are a lot of competing interests
0: at stake. Like everything else, but this one in particular, yes.
1: You described yourself on your website as a kind of a former radicalizer. And I was kind of struck by that term because, well, I think I know what it means. I'm not really sure that I do. So help me understand what that means to you.
0: Again, this is very complicated. And these discussions are, are, are very interesting, especially even when you have them amongst uh, the most prominent members of the field. I was a former radicalizer in the sense that I offered a pill a prescription pill, if you will, for those that wanted to take it. I could give you an entire interpretation of the world around you that would explain the very reason for your existence from the dawn of creation, prior to history and time and space, all the way on up to your resurrection and you're being brought to account for what you did with your life, and then particularly tailor a political, economic, social, and religious worldview and narrative around current affairs that could fluctuate day by day, but would be structured around constants that never changed. And that allowed me to sort of de-individualize an individual and make their own independent mind and cognitive mindset become part of a group. And once a person engages in groupthink, then the dynamics of that individual change. That is not to say that I was a brainwasher, that I deliberately looked for people to manipulate. The way that we saw what we were doing and the way that the propagandist really sees himself or herself as acting upon is to make the truth accessible to those that are already seeking it. And so what we would create is entire ecosystems that would overwhelm people with a message they had never heard before. I was one of the first radicalizers and recruiters from the jihadist variety in the post nine eleven environment in the United States to unabashedly promote al-Qaeda's perspective. When we started preaching al-Qaeda's interpretation of Islam, it was imagined that because American Muslims were better educated, more affluent and a bit more integrated than their european counterparts that we would essentially become a laughing stock whereas some of the narrative of al qaeda had resonated in europe it was imagined that in the united states it would simply fall flat because of the demographical differences that i, I alluded to earlier that proved not to be the case which suggests that ideas can impact people across a sociodemographic background across all sorts of variables that we don't account for And it means and suggests even more so what we learn more and more each day that we live on this planet in a world that is changing technologically at incredible speeds is that ideas matter today more than they ever have in the history of humankind's existence. We recognize that. And when I say I was a radicalizer, putting radical ideas out there today is not just something that can impact small people at a church in your community or a mosque in your community. Because of the nature of communications and technology, you have an audience of 7 billion people in the world, all of whom can access your message with a click of a link, no matter where they are at. And so I think radicalizer is better than propagandist, better than recruiter. I think it's a more apt description for what people that disseminate ideas do for social movements
1: you know it's interesting because as a psychologist one of i think our greatest failings as a profession sometimes is failing to recognize the power of the situation to influence people's thinking and their behavior there are so many times when i would see clients or would talk to other professionals and we tend to attribute so much of human behavior and motives to personality and to something inherent in a person and I'm certainly not saying that we don't have genetic predispositions and those kind of things, but there's a tremendous body of literature that shows that you put a lot of different people in a similar situation and you can shape their behavior pretty clearly. Indeed. In the same way.
0: Indeed. And that is one of the shortcomings in the field of extremism studies as well as that we have built models of radicalization into extremist violence on case studies, individual case studies that are context specific. We haven't really put a lot of emphasis on the context. And it's much more easy, as we know from psychological realms of thought, like from behavioralism, to shape the environment in which an organism lives as it is to impact the actual organism. And I think it's it's one of the things in the realm of psychology that we're starting to understand increasingly, and even at the realm of genetics with the realm of genes and the fact that there are susceptibilities and predispositions for criminal behavior and for particular personality traits even, but that the epigenome can shift on and off the activation of those traits. And so that environment and context, nature and nurture, that debate will never be fully resolved. But I think what we're getting at now is we're getting at an ability, scientifically speaking, to study these phenomena in a way where we can look at the two in the way they intersect because we have new tools of measurement and we're starting to learn more and more. The neuroscience of terrorism and extremism is, is starting to produce some interesting finds that may be particularly appropriate to trying to figure out how to assess risk and how to uh, determine whether an individual who has some sense of susceptibility or predisposition to become a quote unquote terrorist might in fact go on to become one based upon what particular context they find themselves existent in. And so that's the next wave, I think, of the social science research realm. I don't think social science could have been considered a raw science up until today, but I do think increasingly we're able to suggest that it might be. And so, yeah, I would, I
1: would agree with that. And it's interesting because we do talk a lot about nature or nurture or you know, personality, predispositions, et cetera, versus environment. And yet we know that they interact upon each other. And yes. yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. they, they kind of are more than the sum of its parts. So you take each of those separately and mm-hmm. put them together and you can get different combinations But I do want to really hear from you. How do you make sense of your involvement?
0: Well, I mean, it, it taps right back into what you're saying. So the interesting thing about my predisposition and susceptibility to radical thought, it has to involve a background of where I am and who I come from. And then it has to be placed in a context to understand that everybody's journey into and out of an extremist movement is unique, but also there's characteristics and, and signposts along the way that are oftentimes common. And so I was born in Pennsylvania. My father was from New Jersey. He was an affluent sort of New Jersey city boy who, in the tradition of many of uh, the affluent in New Jersey, went to a small liberal arts school in Pennsylvania to do pre-law bachelor's degree studies. But the year that my father finished his high school education, his father, who was a prominent attorney in the state of New Jersey, passed away out of nowhere at a very young age from lung cancer, left no uh, mechanisms in place, whether it be life insurance or whatnot, to support the family effectively. And so my father found himself at a university during a period of time when he was go- very much going through his own personal sort of crises. And my family on my father's side goes all the way back to the Mayflower. So I couldn't be the better representation of what should have become an all-American boy from one sense were it only up to genetics. And my grandmother's side of the family, and my father's side is sons and daughters of the American Revolution. I'm a direct descendant of Samuel Adams. I go all the way back. However, my father moves to a small town in Pennsylvania, and this is the late 1960s in the context of far-leftist movements, countercultural movement. And my father is dating a a young woman from a local, impoverished, rural background. He impregnates her, and back then you had to get married. If you impregnated a woman, it was more of a social norm, and they get married despite pleas from family members to have an abortion, and I am the first child that keeps them intact, they should never have gotten married and they ended up hating each other. My father ended up being an adulterer. And for my mother's own personal characteristics and probably her own should have been diagnosed bipolar you know, disorder or something along those lines, I ended up becoming, long story short, a traumatized and abused young child at the hands of my mother who essentially took out her rage, anger, and frustration upon me as a result of my father's adultery. So my father ends up becoming a workaholic with a mistress on the side. I end up becoming the only man in the house, taking care of my younger brother, my younger sister, defending my sister from abuse and taking abuse on her behalf. So becoming a person who's willing to sacrifice myself for others with a messianic sort of complex. That's going out and about into the world with a personality that is quite confident. I would say probably above average intelligence with a certain level of of magnetism in my personality, sort of certain level of charisma, but also damaged and destroyed from the abuse in the house and having to defend it. And so at the age of 16, I run away and I take to the streets and I join a countercultural movement on the far left, akin to what my father followed. I start to travel with the Grateful Dead. And I become a hippie and I'm traveling with the dead and I'm doing what people that travel with the dead do. I'm selling drugs on concert parking lots to help accommodate concert goers. And I end up getting arrested in Penn State University's parking lot of a concert. My first time in jail, they ask me if I want to go to the the library of the jail to grab a book. I grab the autobiography of Malcolm X. I read it cover to cover. Malcolm was abused. His father was an activist. He ended up going to school, getting educated, going to prison after becoming a hustler and then totally changing his life through this religion called Islam. At first, it seemed like it was a racial form of Islam. But in the end, he goes to Mecca and he walks and prays with white people, with brown people, He denounces the nation of Islam he belonged to. And I was just enthralled. Long story short, I continued radicalizing, ended up in jail again, and was recruited by a Moroccan veteran of the Afghanistan Soviet Jihad of the 80s. And he sort of radicalizes me, sort of teaches me the basics of the religion. I'm already far leftist in politics. So I take this sort of anti-Zionist, anti-American, anti-imperialist attitude and flavor that I'm already predisposed to, and I sort of inserted into this should have been spiritual tradition that gave me stability. Five prayers a day, fasting a month during Ramadan, giving 2.5% of my wealth in charity, attempting to establish stability so that I can travel to Mecca once in a lifetime was all good for me, but I interpreted the religion in a way that was politicized. Converted in 2000, and then you know a little bit over a year after, 9-11 happens.
1: Help me get a perspective. So when you meet this Moroccan gentleman, are you in prison?
0: I was in jail. I was in Richmond City Jail. So after I read the autobiography of Malcolm X, I continued to live like a hippie. Okay. I continued to travel around the country, Continue, but I started to read books on like end of times prophecy, whether it was the book of Revelations, the book of Daniel, the Tibetan books on Shangri-La, whatever. I became enamored and fascinated with this concept of the end of times. And Islam has, of course- These eschatological traditions as well. And I started to gravitate and to pick those books up as well. But it was really when I finally got in trouble again in Richmond, Virginia. So I was stopped in Richmond, uh, Virginia, and I um, was put in jail for what would have been about 90 days because I was selling false narcotics outside of a concert. I knew I was going to go home because the drugs weren't real. But when I walked onto the cell block, there was an individual there, his, his name was Ahmed, and he was Muslim, and I told him I had converted to Islam, though I didn't know much. And so for those 90 days, I sort of studied with him at his feet, if you will, sort of hand in hand. He walked me through, not just teaching how to, learning how to pray and speak in the Arabic language, the rudimentary components of the Arabic language, but teaching me the Qur'an. And then politicizing my beliefs because he was a veteran of the jihad in Afghanistan that birthed bin Laden. And he told me about an impending war that would be coming with the Western and Islam and that ultimately the Muslims would win that war and that they would reign dominant over the entire world. And that we were living in very fascinating times and that I should prepare myself not just to be a regular Muslim, but to be a real Muslim a Muslim that really understood the times that we were living in and was able to sacrifice for the greater good and the cause. And as an individual who has very little to believe in and very little sense of community, very sense of family and very little connection to any territory, any tribe, any group, any nation, as a result of the life that I had lived, it gave me the first sense of having a family, the first sense of camaraderie, of community. He offered me a path toward meaning and significance. And I latched onto it. And from the time I walked out the door, put down everything, alcohol, drugs, completely changed my life, prayed five times a day, and moved back to New York City, where I started to slowly radicalize increasingly up until the point where 9-11 happened. And then I took it on full hoard. We're
1: going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue with the story. This is Dr. Joni Johnston, and my guest is Jesse Morton. And you are listening to A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud.
0: Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shine and sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio.
1: Welcome back to A threat of Evidence. This is Dr. Joni Johnston. Our guest today is Jesse Morton, who is sharing a very just fascinating story with us about his Former experience as a jihadist radicalizer. So Jesse, when we took a quick break, you were telling us about this experience you had in jail meeting a Moroccan man who pretty much took you, it sounds like further down the path toward extremism. You said that you had already been interested in Islam, you had converted to Islam, you'd read Malcolm X, you had become interested in all this, but it was really in this during this experience in jail that you started seeing yourself become more political. Mm -hmm. So what happens next?
0: Well, I mean, nine eleven happened, and that's where you get into the conversation about the importance of context, because immediately now we are living in an age where the worst and most atrocious modern-day terrorist attack has occurred on domestic soil in the country where I was born. And most of the country mobilized around the situation, and I found myself of my frustration with the society. Really, I know now in retrospect, it was largely frustration because as an abused child, I felt like society had failed me because I had slipped through the cracks of being recognized by the authorities or because I had told a guidance school counselor once that I was being abused and he shrugged it off sort of in a sense that I felt anger and animosity at my own closed little small experience and sort of overgeneralized my own personal haphazard experiences to the community at large. So I held a grudge and I held a chip on my shoulder. And when 9-11 happened, whereas the overwhelming proportion of people, particularly people with my background, were pro-American and rallied around our cause, I sided with the terrorists. So what
1: was your reaction? I mean, so do you remember where you were when you heard about it? And what were your thoughts?
0: I was asleep in Syracuse, New York, and someone woke me up. They knew I was Muslim and they said, you know, we didn't know who did it. But they said, come in, you got to really look at this because there was already some sort of speculation immediately. The questions were, who would have done it? What are the possibilities? And I looked at, I woke up, I rolled out of bed and remember I was, you know, starting to learn more and more. And I said, oh, shit, we're going to war with the Muslims and rolled, went right back to sleep, woke up while everyone else was good to the TV slit. rolled back to sleep for a couple of hours, woke up later and was just, you know, pretty much unharmed. In retrospect, I realized that I was sort of desensitized from it all. And yeah, I went on and the reaction to 9-11 started to unfold. I found myself increasingly interested in the narrative of the quote-unquote other and completely enthralled with the discourse of U.S. foreign policy as been and portrayed it because it ran pretty coincident to the words of Malcolm X or to the words of some of the far leftist anti-Israeli critics that I had paid a lot of attention to. It was definitely more violent, definitely more vehement in its hatred. But at the end of the day, the critique was the same. The solution, however, was a global pan-Islamic caliphate that killing civilians in the street was a necessary sort of end-justifies-the-means strategy. But here was a man who was saying all these hateful things with a calm demeanor, a slow, calm, casual tone. And as a billionaire who left the homeland of the Prophet Muhammad to fly to the hills to fight for Muslim. So he had this very Che Guevara-esque sort of reputation, and he became my hero. So I became, in my own mind's eye, a supporter of Osama bin Laden, willing to spread his message in the United States, where I think we were really the first organization that did so. It was experimental. There were other people we were affiliated with abroad. But we started to construct a message that wasn't just Al Qaeda and Bin Laden, but that was tailored so that it could appeal to Western youth who were more uh, prone and and experienced in video games, Madison Avenue branding techniques, and Hollywood than they were in sort of long theological arguments and political diatribes. And so we we were very. Are you
1: surrounding yourself at this point with people who only believe what you believe?
0: So after nine eleven, I started to study more and more. And you start to study more and more, of course, in the, in the halls of any university are the like-minded. And the halls of the universities became, you know, jihadi university online, if you will. So the people that were radicalizing were all involved in these. Before there was social media, there was private discussion chat groups on Internet websites that would be, you know, the like-minded would be there and they would talk current affairs or they would talk a particular topic and you could learn with each other. And it was over these discussion forums that I started to build relationships. And then I met an organization in New York City that was an offshoot of al pajirun which is the most successful radicalization and recruitment agency, probably in the history of the English-speaking world, that was housed then in London, but had an associate operating a small offshoot in New York City called the Islamic Thinkers Society, and I joined them and became one of their chief figureheads and speakers from the year 2003 until 2006. Now, the whole time I was doing this and learning this, I was actually using my American-born name, Jesse Morton, to get a bachelor's degree in human services. I was running a nonprofit in Brooklyn, New York. I was a certified substance abuse counselor, mental health practitioner. And then at the same time, I had an alter ego on the side. I started my
1: own. I mean, did the people in your daily life know about this other side of you?
0: They knew that I was radical, that I was revolutionary, and they knew that I was Muslim, but I don't think they knew to what extent it got because the only place I showed my true colors was when I was preaching in mosques on the streets and handing out pamphlets in New York City subway stations, 42nd Street, Times Square. I had this very, very revolutionary alter ego that would come out on the side. And it really was just an outlet for my rage and my frustration. And and it was a means of me coping with the fact that I hadn't ever dealt with the trauma and the abuse. And here I was an individual who had turned towards addiction as a young man and now was substituting an addiction uh, of substance for an ideological addiction. So the ideology became the drug and it kept me detached from my body to the point where I was living in the world of platonic ideas rather than in the world of reality. And I viewed myself as a soldier for the cause. My personality, my identity had completely been submerged by the activist notion of this transnational jihadist community. And so the more and more I stepped into it in the online arenas, the more and more I met the right connections, the more and more I grew adept at articulating the chief principles and teaching them to others, the more and more influential I became. And it was sort of that fascination with power or feeling as if I had some sense of significance and purpose kept pulling me forward. I met some of the most prominent propagandists that ever walked the face of the English speaking world from Anwar al-Awriki to Samir Khan to Abdullah Faisal to Omar Bakri Muhammad. These are the biggest names in the field of jihadist recruiting. And I was their sort of their underling and then ultimately became a chief leader and ideologue myself.
1: Um, So could you spot, when you were a radicalizer, could you spot individuals or young people that you thought immediately were open or vulnerable to radicalization?
0: So recruitment and radicalization is not just a top-down process, it's a bottom-up process as well. There's a mix between the two. Our principle, what we called it and what we were taught to do is make the truth available to those that seek it. And so what we would do is we created a website We would not just keep it online. So we would go out and everything we did throughout the course of the day because things were transitioning into YouTube. So we were the very first jihadist organization that would make these videos that would just be us hanging out. We would be talking outside of a mosque. Then what we would do is we would shoot ourselves riding around on a pedicab in downtown Manhattan. We had New York City as a backdrop, which made simplistic videos even more appealing to an audience across the English-speaking world. We would be on Times in Times Square handing out Quran's and filming that. But then we'd also give hour and a half long lectures. So what we did was we created an online ecosystem that for people that needed to get news and information, we delegitimized everything. In the same way that we talk about fake news today, we delegitimized any news outlet other than our own. And what we built over a period of about the first year of our operation was a one-stop shop for information. So you could have audio lectures from chief propagandists. You could see us out in the field acting upon what we were preaching. You can see up-to-date news information about U.S. policy in some world, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, the war in whatever. You could see all up-to-date information on current affairs and you could literally stay submerged in my website for the entirety of your day. So this is
1: just a a very organized system, it sounds
0: like. And And purposefully. Back in the day, there was no efforts to take us offline. Though the concept of free speech is something that we understood and we walked right up to the line of it, but stopped short of breaking the law, consciously exploiting the First Amendment. Now it's grown more difficult because of the controversy around what the Frankenstein is that we created. When ISIS came about, there was bigger pushes to take down terrorist content. But what most people don't understand is the template and the model for that, for keeping those things in compliance with terms of service agreements started in my era, the era that I was active, which was, I was a chief propagandist from 2004 till May, 2011. I was taken off the field two weeks after bin Laden was killed in Abadabad when I was arrested in a street in Casablanca, Morocco.
1: What was the goal here, Jesse? I mean, I understand that the ideology, I understand, you know, kind of this need to belong. I understand Mm -hmm. the process of, radicalization but i'm Mm -hmm. thinking okay what is the end goal here
0: well the end goal as sinister as it is and it's not just for jihadists or for but for also neo-nazis and and whatnot is you don't like the world that you live in you found a collective of individuals with a sticky ideology that justifies why you hate the world you live in so the ultimate goal is to tear down the world as it exists and to rebuild it in your own image And what that does is that allows you to channel your rage, your hatred, your fueled frustration, your anger, your anxiety, and to put it into a cause outside of yourself so that you never have to deal with the pain and the anxiety and the trauma that's inside of yourself. It's just an opiate.
1: So how did you get people or how did you encourage people to go from ideas, extreme ideas, Mm -hmm. to violent action? What was that path?
0: So we would exploit the grievances, some of which are legitimate. We would repeat the same key ideological principles. We would put forth individuals that were renowned, Bin Laden, his right-hand man, Ayman al-Wahri, big fighters in the field, activists and advocates who were willing to speak the truth in the West, like myself, other scholars that I preached alongside of. And we would create hero worship of a sense. And these are individuals that have stood up and they're willing to sacrifice for the cause. And what are you doing? So we would guilt, shame, trip, individual adherence into thinking that they weren't doing enough, that our solution was the only solution. We would overgeneralize the grievance and oversimplify the grievance so that we cut the world up into a very black and white perspective, which makes particularly for traumatized and anxiety-ridden brains easy to deal with reality because if it's not your own fault for why you're not successful and you can blame something else outside of yourself, then the world becomes deducible down to, they did this to me, that's why I'm in the condition I'm in now. So if I can just get rid of them, everything will be fine. And so then you can demonize or dehumanize the other. You have to have an other. And so we did that with the tradition of Islam in a framework that was completely literal and referred to real actual scriptures. So if I take you to a Quranic verse and I tell you, you see, the Quran says that. Why don't they tell you that? brother, that that is in the Quran, then the person who's already susceptible and vulnerable is going to take the next step because literally he thinks that you're bringing to him the word of God put in front of his face. What can you do with that? How can you argue with the word of God? Not knowing that it is up to the radicalizer and the recruiter to interpret that and that that is decontextualized and that is put through a lot of unintellectual articulation without any sense of rationality or reasoned rigor. And so it's mainly brainwashing and manipulation. But what the radicalizer and the recruiter doesn't realize is it was already done to him. And so he just feels like he's attained a certain station in life where he can do it to others. So we think of it with regard to the perpetuation of violence and trauma, where like if someone is in fact sexually molested, they have a much higher propensity to commit the same sexual act on another when they get older as it had been done to them when they were young. And so we can think of the radicalizer and recruiter in the same way that they are merely passing on a tradition that has been forced upon them.
1: And one thing that kind of struck me as you were talking is that 2001, after 9-11, we were all very, we being you know, Americans, were very sensitive to terrorism and obviously after the attack. And I'm wondering, did anybody investigate your group? I mean, yeah. how, so what happened? I mean, how aware were other people in law yeah. enforcement of what was going on?
0: Well, I mean, one of my best friends ended up being an informant for many years working with the NYPD. I now work with the NYPD official who ran and was the director of intelligence at the NYPD while I was active. The FBI was on my case. But remember, I wasn't a terrorist. I was a preacher. And we have amazing free speech laws in the United States that allow us to say what we want. And there wasn't enough concentrated effort from amongst the American Muslim community or from amongst the general civil society to counter the ideas that I was espousing. And so there was very little work to counter the ideas with other ideas. And so I operated with impunity because I knew what it was illegal to say and I knew what I could say. And I only said what I could say until in 2010 somebody used my website to threaten the writers of South Park for portraying the prophet Muhammad in a cartoon, which crossed the threshold for protected speech and ended up getting me incarcerated for those threats.
1: So what happened? So you were kind of very committed, obviously to this movement Mm. for a number of years. Mm. When When did the wind shift for you?
0: So in April of 2010, a cohort of mine threatened the writers of South Park for portraying the Prophet Muhammad in one of their cartoons, and it went international in its controversy. Indonesia and Pakistan shut down Facebook for a day as a result of a woman who started Everyone Draw Muhammad Facebook page. That caused animosity amongst the Muslims, and then two of my old cohorts, Anwar al and Samir Khan, who were later American citizens killed by drone attack in Yemen, who had joined al-Qaeda, launched an English-language magazine, an iteration of which we had started here in the United States. So my colleague was arrested in that period of time when these threats are going sort of viral. And I knew the time was up for me. So I ran to Morocco thinking that I could flee the long arm of the wall. And when I got to Morocco, I was tutoring Moroccan millennial youth, Arab youth. The Arab Spring broke out. And when the Arab Spring broke out, I was sitting there talking with millennials in the Arab world about the future that they wanted. I sort of grew very interested in the fact that a lot of the things that they wanted and that I could see were very big problems in their societies, I took for granted the right to express myself, the right to have an uncorrupt police force, the right to fair trial and elections. But I but it wasn't just that I didn't know it was there. It was living around their system and realizing how, you know, the rule of law and for all of its flaws, democracy, it started to reconnect me to my roots a little bit. It cast a seed of doubt. Not to mention the fact that by Force, not choice. I had to refrain from communication with my old friends. So I was removed from the network. Then what happened was the United States put an indictment out for me and I was arrested. I spent five months in a Moroccan jail with a famous former jihadi preacher who had changed. And he sort of challenged my beliefs more. Then when the Americans came to pick me up and put me on a private jet to fly me back to the United States... By that time, they asked me whether I wanted to be called my Muslim name or my American name, and for some interesting reason, as a result of them putting the Quran down in front of my face and giving me the freedom in the United States to access my religious scripture, something, by the way, that I was denied in Morocco. I asked them to call me Jesse. So my identity transformation was going in reverse. They housed me in solitary confinement when I returned to the United States and a guard would get me out of the 23-hour-a-day lockdown status, take me upstairs, let me read books in the law library. I would read post-enlightenment philosophers in the Encyclopedia Britannica's Great Books of the Western World. I read philosophers from you know, our more contemporary age, key thinkers, Nassim Nicholas-Taleb, Dan Kahneman, key you know thinkers like this. I, I reconnected myself to a post-enlightenment framework, and then I'd go back to the cell and I'd read Quran, and the religious scripture through a price post-enlightenment perspective, and I started to thaw out. The FBI came when I pled guilty to the charges that were brought against me. And it was apparent by that time, due to the changes and alterations that going on inside of me, that they weren't waging a war against Islam. They were just trying to keep people innocent, innocent people from being killed. And then I imagined those innocent people not as people that were waging a war, but now started seeing them in my head as my sister or my grandmother or somebody's grandmother, somebody's sister. And I realized how disgusting the beliefs that I was preaching were and ultimately was sentenced to 11 and a half years in prison. But by that time had developed a relationship with the FBI. I began to be an informant. I helped crack a lot of cases in the midst of Americans traveling abroad to join ISIS. And ultimately a judge left me out three and a half years into an 11 and a half year sentence on March 1st, 2015, Shortly after ISIS had announced its caliphate, less than a year after ISIS had announced its caliphate, and only a few months after Jihadi John started beheading American journalists to see what I could do on the streets. And I was given a second opportunity at life.
1: There, let me stop the stairs so we can take a quick break. And we come back. I do want to spend the rest of the time really talking about your organization and the work that you're doing now and what you've learned from your personal experience, as well as working with the FBI and other law enforcement groups to stop some of the extremism that you're seeing today. We'll be right back on A Threat of Evidence on America Out Loud.
0: This is Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, the Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police. On sale right now at Amazon.com. That's The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police at Amazon.com.
1: Welcome back to A Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnson. We're speaking with Jesse Morton, who was a former jihadist propagandist, and is currently an executive member and co-founder of Parallel Network, which is an organization that attempts to identify and prevent and stop Islamic extremism. And Jesse, it was kind of interesting at our break, I was thinking about what irony there was in the fact that you're kind of, I guess, deprogramming in a weird kind of way was when you went actually to Morocco and were faced with some of the conditions that were without some of the freedoms that we enjoy here. Mm-hmm. And how that began, kind of changing your mind in terms of maybe some of the democratic ideals that we have are not perfect, but they're better than some of the other ones. Mm-hmm. But I want to talk about your organization now. When we left off, you were talking about that you had that you were released from prison in 2015, and you began working with the FBI and other law enforcement organizations. And so, tell me about the work that you do now.
0: Okay, so I actually partner with the former director of intelligence at the NYPD that monitored me for. Close to a decade of my life, we began to collaborate after I changed and altered, and I was outed by the Washington Post as an informant in 2016. And I started working with, amongst others, a former, the former NYPD official that monitored me. And so, what we do now is we try to change the way that we think about how we can sort of not give up on law enforcement or counterterrorism practices by any way, shape, or form, but how we can build sort of tools in the counterterrorism toolkit that can allow us to do more than just interdict in a case that we see an individual or a group or a collective progressing or advancing along the stages that lead to violent extremist behavior. So we do a way of things in order to do that. And we're experimenting in many ways. And we're the very first organization to do these things at the level at which we're doing them in the United States, at least.
1: So give me an example of what you might do.
0: Okay. So for example, one of the realms of operations that we carry out is a counter messaging operation, which means to counter and to challenge the narrative of jihadists. It's been tried before, ineffectively for the most part. The State Department, for example, did a campaign called Think Again, Turn Away that actually radicalized people more so than it deterred people from not joining ISIS. So I started these English language jihadi magazines. I wrote the lead article for the first one. These magazines have become lethal and dangerous and they've become one of the key cornerstones of jihadist propaganda. I uh, penned the lead article and designed the template for them. And so recently we launched an initiative where we took their magazine. We took back the template because I'm most uniquely qualified to do so saying, okay, we gave you this, we're taking it back. The content is completely antithetical, but it doesn't counter anything. It goes against their beliefs, but it does so through the very same epistemological reference points that they quote, the very same literalist interpretations of the universe that they hold, we adhere to that, which is a way for us to deconstruct the ideology from their own worldview, which is important, something that has not necessarily been attempted. But then we also provide an alternative worldview, which taps into a lot of what you're talking about, eradicating the idealisms, right? One can say that the United States is responsible for every wrong and ill and affliction in the Middle East, Anybody that says that has never lived in the Middle East. There is very clear the minute that you spend any substantial time in the Middle East, the United States, if anything, needs more influence, not less. And that's hard for people to stomach, but not hard for anyone who's ever been there or comes from there to stomach. And it's very important to say that because sometimes the loudest voices calling about U.S. imperialism, in the Muslim world particularly, have never been to the Muslim world. And so what we do is we provide an alternative narrative that changes that. But also that message gets embedded into where the jihadists are flocking now. So jihadists are not on Facebook and they're not on Twitter any longer because we've developed algorithms to remove them. But the future of social media is in encrypted channels. The future of online participation is on the darknet with privacy concerns revolving around Russian meddling on social media in the elections, with Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook facing severe global pushback against the fact that they were sharing people's data and violating their privacy, what we've created is we've created a global collective that is anti, that wants more privacy, and they're migrating to platforms that offer encrypted services, and so are the jihadists. So ours was the very first counter-messaging magazine. We bumped our magazine that we designed. We launched it in the Wall Street Journal. We launched it in Washington Post, which is different than anything that's been done before. I'm just sort of using this as an example to show how we do things differently because people think terrorists recruit online. They recruit with the mainstream media right? Carers don't care about how many people are dead. They care about how many people are watching. So if they can get people to show CNN ISIS all day long, that's the best recruitment tool they could ever have. And I know that because I was on CNN repetitively back in the day. And it was the largest recruitment tool for getting my website as much traffic as ever was the days that we were on Fox or the days that we were on CNN and they were covering our narrative. But now we're in those dark little tricky corners of the internet doing the very meticulous work that it takes to do and to promote this idea of one-on-one interventions. And we're using the magazine as a means of communication. We're dissecting their networks in the darknet. But then we've built out an infrastructure because we think holistically and we understand that psychology of the individual needs weight against social psychology as well. And that if we're going to offer people or tell people that they're wrong, we need to offer them a network that rivals in size and scope the extremist networks, but that also offers them an antithetical worldview built upon principles that are against terrorism and sometimes might even share in the same grievance, sometimes might acknowledge the grievance. So we've built the initial remnants or the initial infrastructure for what should be considered an entire ecosystem that can rival the jihadist ecosystems. We've built a website called lightuponlight.online. I go around and I speak and and do things like this podcast with you in order to promote awareness of the cause. And the idea is that we are living in an age of intersecting extremisms. The right-wing extremism intersects with jihadist extremism, and right-wing extremism is now causing a great deal of left-wing, what I would call extremism, but would probably more Properly be termed far leftist radicalization and polarization in general. So everything extremes is feeding. We are living in an age of extremes. And in an age of extremes, we need to develop a network that can be parallel to extremes of all varieties and challenge people to recognize the extremes inside of themselves. So we don't just do it with jihadism because we can show the relationship between jihadist attacks in Sri Lanka and their most recent statement of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi with regard to a reaction to what happened in Christchurch carried out by a person who held animosity against immigrants from the Muslim community. So we can see the holistic intersection of it all. And so we cover content that's related to that. In areas of expertise, we sort of have trainings, legislators with people that are counterterrorism professionals. We do research where we publish, you know, be differently slanted and we analyze the problems of tomorrow, today basically, from a perspective that allows us to continue. Mitch and I, my partner Mitch Silber and I have been very prescient with regard to seeing changes and transitions as they occur in real time rather than down the road. And so one of the things that's the problem about combating terrorism is terrorist movements shift, they transmutate overnight. And when you're encumbered by bureaucracy and by a sort of top-down approach, you can't shift in time. So you're oftentimes implementing policies that are based upon evidences that took two years to accumulate. But by the time you implement and you actually get to policy and practice on the ground, the situation has already shifted and changed. We're trying to take that space away. So we're trying to learn by doing rather than to have the ivory tower tell people what to do and to have that delay mean that the information being conveyed is no longer applicable. We're trying to eradicate that space in the counterterrorism community. So we're we're doing very interesting top-notch, top of the line work and in the American handbit, which is unique because there's no other country or no other network like the American society on the face of the earth. So it's absolutely fascinating. So when and- you do
1: the training, what are the like most common misconceptions that you hear
0: about uh, some of these basically- issues? Basically, the idea that the people that are joining these movements are completely ignorant in the first place, that they're not seeking something as well, that the recruitment process is, is a top-down brainwashing mechanism. Someone like me sitting in a corner looking to exploit an innocent son or a daughter it is so much more complex than that. The idea that we could come up with a terrorist profile, that we could predict in any way human behavior because we still suffer, as we talked about earlier in the episode, thinking that there's somebody that has some sort of disease inside of them. So we haven't gotten to the point where we can understand context, the intersection between the context, the individual nature and nurture and its interplays. And we haven't incorporated what we've learned from the realm of psychology, from the realm of social neuroscience, from the realm of the behavioral sciences, from the realm of genetic epidemiology, from the realm of trauma treatment and trauma practice, from the realm of peace building community, from the realm of... There's, we need to have a transdisciplinary social science network that's that's incorporating all of these fascinating discoveries we're making in the realm of the sciences and applying them to the realm of violent extremism studies. Terrorist professionals tend to believe that they're studying something that is completely new. People that are countering violent extremism tend to believe that this has never been done before. We'd be a lot further ahead if we just incorporated what we already knew and took people that have experience in the field. The best thing about Mitch Silber and myself is we were there. We did it in real world. We didn't get it no, anymore. Arthur-
1: are there individual interventions? I mean, what would you recommend? What, what, like, let me put it a different way, Jesse. What could someone, if anything, have said to you
0: mm-hmm. when they saw
1: you being, you know, being radical in terms of your ideas? They be not being aware of the extent of the things that you were doing, but you mentioned that some of your colleagues were aware that you were, yeah, you, know, you had some pretty extreme beliefs. What do you do?
0: Well, I mean, it, it's about having an understanding of the ground. It starts with empathy. It starts with understanding that if I see a child in, acting out at school and he's in third grade. And this child is violence. There's a very high probability that there's violence in the home. I shouldn't just assume that that child is predisposed to violence. There may be some variables that are true for that belief. But what we should do is we should do more thorough investigation. And usually when I investigate people that are already committed, it has nothing to do with ideology and there's something there. And it happens every day. Every day. All I do is I meet these people where I meet them where they're at. and And I show them that, hey, I know what it was like to be you. And so if someone would have came to me when I was young and I was getting abused and they would have said, you know what, you know, we might not be able to stop the abuse, but we're at least going to acknowledge the fact that you are getting abused and give you somebody that you can talk to. That would have meant the world. And it doesn't mean that that's what caused me to become a radical or that we can intervene that early and say, hey, you know, I prove a negative. This guy would have become a terrorist. But because I stopped his mommy from abusing him, I saved him. That's not the sense. It's the same. No matter where a person is at, they are inherently good. And it's something that is just true. There are committed terrorists that will never be able to come back and they'll never be able to be de-radicalized. And there's, there's not much you can do for them, but try to take them out of the context in which they can harm others. But for the overwhelming majority of people, I was diehard. I was completely committed. I was completely willing to sacrifice for the cause. It was only by the grace of God that I did not end off, end up in some sort of battlefield somewhere, making videos the likes of which I saw a couple of years after I was arrested. But the, at every stage, I do realize now, at a certain stage, it would have had to be ideological, and then transitioned into the personal. But in the beginning, it would have had to be personal, develop a personal bond, and then talk about the ideology. But it takes training, it takes guidance. It's like a good psychotherapist. You know, you have once there's a certain skill set. If we do something long enough and learn how to do it. And we practice it enough, we become experts in it. And we start to see things, whether we have evidence or we don't. There's no greater experience than real life experience. And so you'll see a therapist, a substance abuse counselor in a former life, you'll notice things nobody else will ever notice. Mitch Silver will notice things in a person's demeanor and behavior from simply doing the job he used to do at the NYPD that nobody else would ever notice. But when we can sort of flesh those things out and turn it into a series of case studies that can lead us off into a realm, we can learn better deprogramming skills. And I'll tell you what, me and Mitch have been doing this for over a, year, a little over a year now. And we have learned an incredible amount. I wouldn't say it's empirical, right? It's experimental, but that's what you do. You learn by doing. And I cannot stress, you know, any more than when we started with the high. Hypothesis that we could have de radicalization initiatives in this country work. I cannot stress anymore that I continue to hold that. If anything, I have increased my belief that until we develop alternatives to interdiction and investigation, we won't be able to break the collective cycle that makes this appeal to individuals. That this secret is in addressing this problem holistically, not just at the level of we need intervention and we need, and, and that means interdiction and it means investigation. We also need alternatives to interdiction and investigation that are one-on-one de-radicalization and sometimes collectivist preventative programming. We need to build out a holistic approach to dealing with extremism because now we're not just dealing with the jihadists. Now we're dealing with... Right-wing extremism, and I'm not so certain we should say that we have to rule out the possibility of a resurrection of far-leftist extremism. If we pan things out and we look down the road, we might want to start to prepare preemptively for all forms of extremism, all intersecting off of each other. And so we're learning a lot, and other people are doing some things close to what we're doing, but in the United States, we're really, we're really trying to push the envelope and get people out of the lab and down into the street, and we're, we're bringing the academics with us, we're bringing the experts with us, but we're doing this at a grassroots level. And it's fundamentally fascinating. And, and honestly, for the listeners, I have to say that our underlying lesson learned is that we are in fact living in an age of extremisms that are intersecting off of each other. And each of us do have a role to play into making sure that we can build a society that is resilient enough to make sure that it resists any temptation to tear down as, as an extremist who used to be an idealist that wanted to tear down this world order. I have to say, one of the Biggest, you know, difficulties for me is watching a world that continues to trek further and further towards authoritarianism where there's very little respect or value for the liberal world order that that has come about through a great deal of turmoil, strife and righteous sort of struggle. And so, you know, we look at what we do in the realm of terrorism is contributing to, you know, preserving a liberal world order. I think a lot of people take for granted. And so, you know, this is just one realm of contributing to that fight. And we all have a bit to do that we can play a role in that fight for sure.
1: So what would be, we're going to have to wrap things up, but what would be the one piece of advice if you're you know, talking to our listeners who are committed to some of the same ideals that you are, what would be the one piece of advice you would give them? How can they be involved? How can they do their piece?
0: Try to understand that whenever we see an external piece of stimuli, we react to it emotionally first before we do rationally, right? And so your show, based upon you know, understanding the psychology of different phenomenon, is we have to get better at understanding how to transition emotions into rationality and reason. We have to take a pause between that space between stimulus and response where we exercise what it is that truly makes us human beings, and that is consciousness. And then when we can take that moment and we can exercise that consciousness, we can really, we don't have to see the world as if it needs to be perfect. We can see the world as perfect for all of its flaws. And I think that's the way to really value, you know, what the world that we live in has come to be and where it's come from and where we can go forward into the future in a way that's healthy and safe and preserves the gains. Because, you know, for me, I'm very fearful that the terrorists will ultimately have their way. The jihadists are waging a war of attrition against us, a slow war that's expected to bankrupt us. We're not supposed to lose this war in a battlefield. We're supposed to lose this war on Wall Street one morning when we wake up. Or we're supposed to lose this war when we have politicization and we have sort of uh, polarization, where we it tears and renders democracies inoperable. And you see the variables starting to become so severe that that could be the case.
1: How can somebody get a hold of you if they want to look to get more familiar with what you do and, and maybe even join or contribute to to the cause? What would be the best way to reach you?
0: We welcome all outreach. You can most easiest way is lightuponlight.online, dot online, which is our website, and hit the contact us page. We have a twenty four hour helpline that. People can call there. We have the email address and all sorts of contact mechanisms.
1: Okay, so one more time, that email address was?
0: LightUponLight.online. That's LightUponLight.online.
1: Okay, well, thank you so much, Jesse. This is, uh, I think, just a beginning and a long conversation that we all need to have about kind of where the world is. And I want to thank you for contributing your thoughts about it.
0: Thank you so much, Joni, for having me. Take care.
1: You have been listening to A Threat of Evidence with your host, Dr. Joni Johnston, and our very experienced and insightful guest, Jesse Morton. We'll see you next time on A Threat of Evidence on America Out Loud.